The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. The people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There were also there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Amen. As I was preparing for this morning, I did a little, uh, a little noodling around on the internet on the uh, history of the feast of Christ the King. Now, while we don't have anywhere written on any of our materials that this is the feast of Christ the King, you may have noticed in our uh, opening collect, or the collect for the day, and in the scripture passages that we have for this morning, a strong... Uh, words about kingship, the presence of language about kingship and lordship. In many churches with ancient liturgical traditions, like the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or our own uh, Anglican Communion or the Lutheran Church, um, the Feast of Christ the King is celebrated on the last Sunday of the church year, which is this Sunday. Now, I was expecting to find that this was really an ancient, ancient feast. Old as Moses' toes, as they say. But I was surprised to find out that it's only about 80 years old. Pope Pius XI, in 1925, established the Feast of Christ the King. And his motivations were probably diverse, but at least one of them was his alarm uh, at the slaughter that had taken place not so long ago during World War I, and also his alarm at the rise of fascism in his own backyard in Italy, the rise of Mussolini. And he felt the need, as he saw and reflected on the carnage of World War I and the rise of a, of a militant secularism uh, in the form of the nation-state in Italy, um, and the need to reassert Christ's primacy, Christ's uh, kingship in the face of secular power. Now, I don't need to tell you that um, we don't need to go back to the 1920s to remember our own need to reassert the primacy of Christ and the way Christ rules. In every era, we have that need. We have the need to re-examine 
what God's kingdom looks like, to remember and relearn what it means to live with Christ's authority in our lives. Now, looking at the gospel today, it's hard to think of Jesus' situation as very kingly or very royal, at least not in the way that we normally think of successful kingship or queenship. Even if we know the next part of the story in the gospel, his resurrection and ascension, it is still hard to see this scene as kingly. Unless, of course, we're willing to revise our understanding of what it means to be in royal power, to have royal power. What is royal power as defined by the life of Jesus? Well, it's clear what it is not. It's clear that it's not about controlling territories or armies or assuming political power. According to the Gospels, Jesus isn't really interested in that kind of power, much to the disappointment of some of his followers uh, who had seen in the history of Israel and in their own uh, history, uh, present history, a yearning for a king who would unite them and throw off the Romans. Jesus wasn't really interested in that kind of power. And it seems like Pilate didn't fear that kind of power from Jesus either. At least in the way Luke tells it, Pilate pretty much says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. He's not, he's not a threat to the state. What was the threat to the state was the crowd that wanted Jesus crucified and one of their cronies released instead. So Pilate didn't think Jesus was the danger. He wasn't a political, wasn't a political threat. It was the crowd that was getting all raucous that was the problem. So it's not that kind of power, political power, military power. So what is the kind of royal power that Jesus exercises? And where is it? Well, first and foremost, Jesus' royal power is exercised in forgiveness and in mercy. In a famous line just before where our passage starts in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus utters from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus asks for forgiveness for all those who have had a hand in his death. This is a sign of unbelievable power. Only divine power can do that. How much easier is it for us to imagine hurling insults or other kinds of abuse on someone who has abused us? But to be on the receiving end of forgiveness is to receive a mighty and powerful blessing. And when we extend forgiveness, we indeed participate in Jesus' divine power. Because as we all know, Forgiveness offered does not come easily. Now, I said a moment ago that Jesus was not interested in political power. That's true, strictly speaking, but it's hard to uh, underestimate the political implications of living the life that Jesus calls us to lead. For example, what would happen if forgiveness were actually practiced in our political process? 
or in the relationships between nation states. Furthermore, Jesus' power is present wherever the deeds he commanded and lived out are present. Which is to say, wherever the signs of Jesus' kingdom are present, Jesus' power is present. And the kingdom is present wherever Jesus nurtures behaviors and habits that we call the fruits of the Spirit. And those fruits are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control and faith. The kingdom is present wherever people baptize or receive bread and wine because Jesus said this is the way we're to remember him. Wherever diplomacy and negotiation are used to avert conflict within households and among nations, the kingdom is present. Jesus' kingdom is present. Jesus' kingdom is present when we use our resources to bring healing and justice in those situations where healing and justice are needed, wherever we feed the hungry or clothe the naked or befriend the lonely. Jesus' kingdom is present in those places. And his authority holds sway. A final thought coming from Martin Luther. Martin Luther made the distinction in the 16th century between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Luther defined the theology of glory as the wish to take God's glory by force of will and to use our relationship with God for protection from suffering and for the fulfilling of our own desires. Most of us, I imagine, are pretty naturally attracted to that idea. On the other hand, the theology of the cross, according to Luther, says that Christians have a relationship with God as God comes to us in Jesus. And Jesus comes to us as one who is humble, as one who is crucified. If we are to know him, we will know him as one on the cross. Most of us have a harder time with this. As one Lutheran theologian has pointed out, nowhere in Scripture is the distinction between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory so clearly stated. Luke offers these two criminals' views of Jesus. One of them represents the theology of glory, the first criminal. He allows for the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has a list of proofs that would be required to convince him of Jesus' real authority. He would not believe in a king on a cross, and he certainly would not believe in a king who left him and himself on a cross. The second criminal articulates the theology of the cross. He calls for respect for God without regard to his own personal circumstances. He looks and sees himself honestly. He also looks at Jesus and sees him clearly. He sees Jesus on a cross, recognizes him as a king, and asks 
to be part of the kingdom. The second criminal does not ask for rescue or for vindication. Instead, he asks for a relationship with Jesus, regardless of where that relationship will lead. Eighty-two years after the beginning of this feast of Christ the King, I think we still do need to be reminded of the way God saw fit to reveal God's power in the world. And, of course, we've needed that reminder not just for the past 82 years, but ever since Jesus first came among us. As we approach the beginning of Advent, let us clear our hearts and heads and renew our relationship with the one who comes as one who serves, not as one who manipulates or dominates. Amen.